Amen. Well, please do make your way to John's gospel as we are working our way uh, through this gospel together. Over the last few weeks, we've considered the kingdoms that are in existence, kingdoms of this world, and the kingdom that is from above. And then last week, we uh, focused in upon some of the, the actors, if you will, who are of this world's kingdoms, the likes of Pilate and the Jewish leaders of the day, chief priests and others who are unbelievers. Well, today... We come to the account of the crucifixion, and in looking at this crucifixion account, it will be here that we focus upon the king who is from the kingdom above. That is our emphasis of this day. We've seen uh, to this point of how Jesus, our Savior, has been arraigned before the the courts of the day and even has been found um, not guilty, and yet... Uh, He is robed in mockery, he's stripped, and he's uh, been made a spectacle before the world itself. And as we think about these things, clearly all four of the Gospels include the crucifixion. uh, And one of the primary reasons why it is accounted for in each of them, certainly not the only reason, but just declaring the historicity of the true event that happened with regard to the death of Jesus Christ. But we come here to John 19's section that we'll look at today. This is a very solemn scene, this crucifixion. I might encourage you, if you don't have anything to read this afternoon, uh, maybe read all of the gospel accounts. And as you do note, God in his providence has placed four different Uh, gospel accounts in the scriptures to get eyewitnesses angles from the various things that they see there's no contradiction between any of the gospels it is that which uh, the lord has put together and each gospel writer reveals certain things but each of them interestingly enough does not go into the gory details find that kind of a extra credit think about that for a moment Uh, In this glorified world of all things ugly, uh, there's much exaltation of blood and gore of our Savior. But the accounts in the Gospels are, and he was crucified. And And that is all that is sad. There's something to give thought to that. Um, Maybe we don't really need to see all that horrific violence. And, And John himself similarly doesn't unpack that side. But he does want you to, to see what Jesus has done. He wants you to to see what the meaning of crucifixion is. He he wants you to know why the the king went to the cross. He he wants you, does John, to uh, understand more deeply what's going on here at the cross. And so it is my hope that as we look at this account that it will bring forward an event of 2,000 years ago and see its relevance for us This morning, as we seek to answer, quite frankly, one question that really gets at all these others that may be in our minds. And that one question is what kind of king is Jesus? What kind of king is Jesus? And it does answer uh, all of those other questions that arise in our minds. But 
that will be the one that focuses us this morning. Let me read God's word and ask the Lord's blessing upon this, his nourishment of our souls. Picking up after he's been delivered over to be crucified, it says there, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, then Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Grant to us, O Father, that we would see the work of your Son and that by your Spirit we, your people, would find ourselves struck by our King, struck to the heart with the comprehension of what he has done and how he has done so in such a manner that has brought our salvation. Help us, we pray, as we have found ourselves in this Lenten and Easter season to give thought to our Savior. We bless you. We thank you for your grace and mercy to us. In Christ's name, amen. Many questions to be answered in our minds, but this one question will guide the points that I make today. What kind of king is Jesus? Clearly, uh, Pilate has placed upon the placard in three different languages, meaning uh, its significance that it was not just for the language of Jerusalem or for those who were further off in other languages, Latin and uh, Greek, but we understand that he has come for all types. But he wrote there, 
He is the king. And they didn't want him to put that. Say, he said he was a king. But in the beauty of the scriptures, here is God declaring through the pen, if you will, of a pagan man who he is. He is our king. The king that from the kingdom which is from above. And so what kind of king do we have? Let us look with keen eyes, I pray, to see these things. First of all, our king, he is our humble king, Jesus. You see there in verse 24, repeated in different places in terms of to fulfill the scriptures, but it says there they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, prophesied in Psalm 22 that that was going to happen. And so here it's recorded by John to say the very thing that was written so many thousand years before is here coming to fruition. The division or dividing up of his garments, casting lots. And so we see the intention here of John recording this portion of the Old Testament scripture showing that even Jesus himself was stripped of all earthly possessions nothing left did he have in this life a picture of amazing humiliation the shame of being publicly removed of all clothing and then to have those who were nobodies rolling the dice and say I'll take that portion of his garment I'll have that You know, there's another place, interestingly enough, you know the account, we don't necessarily need to turn there, but previously in our study of John's gospel, there's another time in which Jesus' garments are removed. In that instance, in John 13, you remember what happened, right? They were there in the upper room, and they've had this fine meal, and so what does Jesus do? He removes his garments. He removes his garments, and he basically begins to wash their filthy feet. And so there is a a sort of a similar connection between the removal of him choosing to remove his garments and that which was done unto him and the removing of his garments here in our account. There is a call to service certainly in John 13, but with that passage, Jesus goes on to to, to basically say, gives us a glimpse, if you were to read the whole account, of what's going to happen at the cross. Because there's no greater act of service than what? Than a man lay down his life for someone else. And so the very thing that he did in the washing of the feet is symbolic of what he was going to do on the cross when his garments are to be removed again and he will wash away the sin of our lives. And so he began to see this about our Savior Jesus, who who came because the Father requested of him, go, son, to earth that I might bring forth salvation to those who have wandered from me, they've rebelled against me, they want to have nothing to do with me. And so he, in his obedience, goes to earth. And he goes and lives a perfect life, doing that which the first Adam did not accomplish in the garden. He disobeyed his father But this one who came, he obeyed his heavenly father and said, I will live the perfect life. And he did so. 
He comes all the way to the point. He basically said to Pilate and to others, you have nothing that you can accuse me of. I have no sin. I've done nothing wrong. And so why has Jesus come to this place where he willingly, because we do know as we've looked at it over the weeks, that he's fully in charge. And yet he willingly says, I'll take up this cross and they have taken my clothing from me. This act of humiliation Because Jesus himself, the Savior, goes to the cross to die for sinners. And so this grand act of humiliation, leaving heaven, which he didn't have to do, lowering himself to come to this earth, as we know Philippians teaches, but here is the epitome of humiliation, stripped of all clothing. He's there. Bearing upon himself on the cross the humiliation of life itself. And so, dear people of God, as we look at our king, we see King Jesus as himself willing to humble himself even to the lowest point of being placed upon the cross, which was the image, the epitome of the worst of the worst who would receive this type of of death, our humble king, King Jesus. But not only was he our humble king or is our humble king, he is our compassionate king. You see this, and again, these these interplay here that John kind of wants to highlight for us, his emphasis, using the very words that are recorded for us, even from Christ's own lips, just as the word became flesh as he began this whole gospel, words are here again on display to show us something, to teach us something. That our king is a compassionate king. As you look there again at verse 26 and 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, this humble king had compassion while he's on the cross. Any one of us, when we are subject to death itself, we're only, I think, in those times going to be thinking about ourselves. And yet here is our Savior, Jesus Christ, having uh, compassion upon his mother and upon John. You look at Mary in this account here. I I can't imagine. I've only seen uh, one woman and her great care for our children and the pain that they go through as they live their lives and how hurtful that can be to a mother. Can you even, I can't imagine what Mary must be experiencing as she's there at the foot of the cross looking to her son, looking to her son, the one that she birthed, the one that she raised. And yet Jesus looks upon her with compassion. And he says, woman, or oh woman, or I'm not sure exactly how he said it, but the scriptures say he said woman, and I suspect it's a bit strange for us men here gathered, especially we would say, and women as well. Um, that seems a little bit of an odd phrase that he would call his mom, not mom, but woman. And as you begin to think about this uh, again, this compassion that he has for her. Once again, there's another place in 
in John's gospel where this word woman is used. You remember in John 2? Do you remember the scene? And so I think it begins, you tie these two together and you begin to see there's this link. It was in no way meant to be disrespectful at all. But in John 2, they've run, there's a wedding and they've run out of wine. And Mary becomes aware of the difficult situation there and the embarrassment it would be upon the bride and her family. And so Jesus is sought out by Mary to say, hey, can you do something about the problem? Can can you fix the problem? And he says, woman, to her there as well. We realize that this Language, oh woman, you don't understand. You don't realize that my time has not come, but we have a picture, a glimpse of of him speaking to her and saying to her, my earthly mother, Mary, there's just something you don't understand. My timetable is not your timetable. Yes, you want me to to make wine right now, and, and certainly that's what she wanted, but there's this, this language there in John 2. I, I have a greater work. I have a greater work, woman, in a, in a warm and affectionate and compassionate way, as he could say to his own mother. And he, get a, he gets a glimpse, or she gets a glimpse, even there at the cross, as she's being reminded of how the affectionate son cried out to her and spoke to her from the cross. Because what does she need greater than the wine that she may have needed at the wedding? But rather, he's speaking to her and saying, there's this greater calling I have than to just perform miracles. Because I've come to do that which my father has asked me to do to fix it. She needs a savior. Mary needs a redeemer. Mary herself needs one who would die on the cross for her sins. And so there is this picture of, of Mary at the foot of the cross now realizing that when he speaks to her and says, woman, here is the very reference that he's making to a greater calling that he's come into this world for and the compassion he has for his mother is that he's now to be her high priest he's now to be her sacrifice he's now to be her redeemer because he's gone to the cross the reason for which he came to this earth oh woman understand That I am the sheep that is being offered once for all, no longer the sacrifice of the old. So you get this beautiful picture of Jesus having compassion upon his own mother, basically in effect saying, I have now come and completed my task here upon the cross. But not only did he have compassion for Mary, he has compassion for John. You say, how so? Well, when was the last time we, we remember hearing about John? When was the last time we saw him? Remember they came to arrest Jesus and all the disciples scatter. And so maybe, this is me just thinking, the last time Jesus saw John was his backside as he's running away. 
She began to think about that. And can you imagine the humiliation that John himself had? I'd been with him for three years and now he's being arrested and I'm getting out of here because I don't want to get arrested. The guilt and the shame that John certainly experienced and had himself as a result of being scattered away when the shepherd um, has been struck, the sheep that is, Jesus himself. And so what he's doing here, as you look at it, what does he do? John, again, grieving, but he's there and he's seeing his friend, his teacher, his guide, and now he's on the cross. John, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take my mother and I want you to care for her as if she's your own mother. He's feeling guilty that he ran away from Christ. And so what Christ does, even from the cross, is he, he kind of leans down. He says, it's okay, John. Take care of my mom. And you begin to realize This is Jesus' compassion upon a man who was guilty because he ran. Take my mother, he says. Care for Mary. Because, John, I love you and I can trust you. That's what he's saying from the cross. But as you reflect upon John, again, looking at Christ on the cross... You, know, you begin to realize that the cross is, is really a place of shame. It's a place of the curse. It's a, it's a place of death. It's ugly. It's nasty. And Jesus goes there to save sinners like John. You begin to see the meaning of the cross. And it is to be understood rightly that as we think about our Savior... Or think about John there looking at Christ. He basically says the cross is the place we go with our guilt. (laughs) I think about this painting that my wife introduced to me a long time ago. I was introduced to it, reintroduced or reminded about it this week as I was reading commentary on it. The some of you probably know of the painting, Rembrandt's painting, The, Rising, the Raising of the Cross. And you, if you know anything about that painting, again, I'm not the artistic uh, person like my wife is. She helps me a lot to get a little more cultured and things like that. But she showed me uh, some time ago now that Rembrandt actually painted himself in that painting. He's the fellow with the blue turban. Look it up. The raising of the cross. And we might ask ourselves, why did he do such a thing like that? And in effect, what he's saying to anyone who would look at his painting in the generations to come. Come a little closer, in effect. And, and, and as you see Christ lifting up the cross, I want to tell you something. I was the one that put him on the cross. That's what Rembrandt was saying. I put him there. 
And likewise, John put him there. And likewise, you put him there. And I put him there on the cross. And so you began to realize the desperate condition that we all have. And in effect, we have a compassionate Savior that, yes, may have come to you at some point in your life already. And he said, come to the cross to you. And you've committed your life to following him But he says it again and again every Lord's Day when we gather. He's in effect saying that by the songs we sing, the meals we partake of at this table, he is saying, come, because the cross is the place for those who are guilty. And I forgive you. As he did John, and as Rembrandt understood, and as I trust you understand That you can't save yourself. That you need to paint your picture with yourself at the foot of the cross. And know that we put him there and yet he went there willingly, desirous of forgiving your sins over and over and over again. And so we see the love and compassion that he had for his own mother one who was certainly upset at a time like this. He cared for her. He, he cared for, for John, who was temporarily a wandering sheep, if you will, and he brought him back as he was there speaking to him from the cross to the one at the foot of the cross. And that's really the nature of the cross, that we have been restored to fellowship with God through the cross. And it is the cross that continues to restore the fellowship that we have break, we break over and over and over again. And so, dear people of God, it's the work of Christ is the cross accomplished by our Savior. Apply to your own hearts this morning to rightly see what he has done for you and what he has done for me. And so we have a humble king. We have a compassionate king. But lastly, we look at more of his words. We see that we have an all-sufficient king. When you come there to verse 30 and you hear the language, having been uh, given the sour wine, and he says, I'm now done. No, he says, I'm finished. Okay, it's over with. Is that what he's meaning by saying it is finished? Oh, so much more. Oh, so much more of what's being said here. All the prophecies that are recorded, and there are three or four of them in this text, all those have been finished. They've been completed. Everything that has been said in the old has been brought to completion now that I have done this on the cross. And so the fulfillment of prophecy has been accomplished. And that's really the language, actually, when it says it is finished in verse 30. If you look back at verse 28, it is fulfilled. Same language. Same language. And so the very first promise that we often think about there uh, with our parents, first parents in the garden, I'll raise up from you, Eve, a son who will crush the head of a serpent. Remember that kind of veiled gospel language in Genesis 3.15? 
that promise is now being fulfilled. Though Satan will strike at the heel of your son, Christ will crush Satan's head. It is finished, is being said there. But oh, so much more is going on. Jesus looking maybe heavenward to his own father, the work that he had been given to do. He can say to his father, it's now finished. It's now finished, that which you've sent me to accomplish. And then you think about the language there of him saying, I thirst. There's a lot in that. You know your Old Testament in Deuteronomy 28. There's a chapter of blessings and a chapter there it includes of cursings. And in the cursing portion, God speaking to Israel says, if you don't obey, here's what's going to happen. I'll cast you out of this land and leave my curse upon you and you will thirst. So 28, Deuteronomy 28, is a lot like the garden when if you disobey, you'll be kicked out and there'll be this remaining curse upon you, the curse of sin and the judgment of death itself. And so what Jesus is here conveying when he says, I thirst, I thirst, I'm bearing the weight of that which you feel as a result of you being in this barren land. Because that's what we all, when we're trying to find things that will satisfy our thirst, not literally necessarily, but isn't it true that so many people, all the folks outside the church and mo- many of the folks, if not most of us, are trying to be satisfied by something in this world. I'm just thirsty. Oh, a little bit more and I'll be satisfied. Jesus here saying, I thirst basically saying I'm the only one that will satisfy your thirst because of my life and my death which has accomplished that which God required which is perfection and judgment placing his wrath did God the father upon his son which my sins deserve my thirsty sins deserve Oh, dear people of God, as we close this day, I, I pray that you would, you would have a glorious uh, view towards your king, King Jesus, that he is a humble king, that he is one who's compassionate upon you. He, he is a sufficient king. He's done all that is required for you to go to heaven, and there is nothing else one must do to make it into the kingdom of heaven. But put your trust in Christ. But as I think about this word, it is finished, further reflections, I wonder if we really believe it is finished, meaning it's been accomplished, fully accomplished, that my, my salvation, that is my justification, has fully been satisfied by Christ. Because when he says it is finished, do you hear what he says? Or do you say something like, well, I appreciate him dying on the cross, but I know i got to do something in order to be saved. We all live like that. We all wrestle with that. Well, i got to do my part, even though he said it's finished. i got to do my part with regard to my salvation. Making distinction between justification and sanctification. But too often times, 
people get tripped up. If you're a Christian, if you put your trust in Christ, you stand on nothing more completed than the words of Christ who here says, it is finished. It is finished. Again, reading something this week, a commentator mentioned this story, Les Miserables. Maybe you've not read the book, maybe you've seen the movie. You know, Jean Valjean. You know the account, many of you, most of you do. Here was a man who'd been released from prison after 19 years. He was, had stole a loaf of bread because he was hungry. He was given a set of papers that said he was a terrible criminal. And everywhere he would go, those papers would be with him. The language of a man, a dangerous convict. And those papers, again, were what were often certainly running through the back of his mind. Running through the back of his mind. Never knowing if it was ever going to come and get him again as it found out about him later in the story. I I do wonder if I, I I do wonder if you, I do wonder if we are people that often live like Jean Valjean. He said it was finished, but I just wonder, is he going to come get me? Is there some papers out there that that convict me of something that I did a long time ago and, and it just keeps lingering in the back of my mind? Is it really finished? The cross for you and me is a picture of the finished work of Christ. You say, but I don't feel like I love him as I should. I don't feel that he loves me as I feel. (laughs) Emphasis on feeling, by the way. Aren't we glad it's not about our feelings? It's about what he has done. Because our feelings are going to always let us down. But what has Christ done? He says, the very thing that God requires, perfection and judgment of sin, it is finished. May we all look to the cross for the very first time or every day of our lives until we go to heaven itself. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us to take our eyes off of ourselves. Let us look at our Savior, King Jesus, and the wondrous cross. For it is viewing the cross. It is a a picture of the accomplishment that our Savior has wrought and that the Spirit has applied it to our lives. We bless you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can live in confidence, Father as followers of yours. We bless you. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We will respond to the preaching of the word by singing.